So, um, man, welcome. We're about to start a, a new sermon series this fall. We're in the book of Ephesians, and I'm entitling this series Doctrine That Dances. And uh, some of you may know that book. It's written by a, a pastor, professor by the name of Dr. Robert Smith, who's a pastor and professor at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, he's written a book on doctrine that dances. And he makes the case that um, doctrine as we know it, we tend to think about we tend to think about heady information, truth about God that sort of stays kind of right here in our minds. And he pushes that that God's revelation about himself should never just stay here. It should work its way down into our hearts and it should start to change us. It changes how we feel and how we think and how we see the world and how we see ourselves in in a sense doctrine dances. It's alive. It's living. It's active. And so I want to sort of name uh, this series that because we're going to be working through the book of Ephesians. And what I want to do is just give you a background information on why I think Ephesians is about doctrine. It's about sound doctrine. Then I'll read the scripture, I'll pray, and then we'll move into the text. So uh, I'll, I'll put it out there real quick that Ephesians is very much unlike most of Paul's writings. When you read 1 Corinthians, for example, it's really easy to know why he's writing, right? He's writing about this man who marries, who's having an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law, I think. He's writing about divisions that are in the church. He's writing about the, the use of these gifts. He's writing about, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. In other words, there's just stuff after every single chapter where it's really obvious, where he's saying, hey, about this thing, okay, this is my conviction. About this thing, this is my conviction. It's really easy when you read 1 Corinthians to know what he's doing. He is settling disputes and dissension and division in the church. You can say the same thing about 1 Thessalonians where there are concerns over the end times and the events of the, the next age and if they've missed out on the rapture and all, all, this, all this other stuff, right? And so Paul is like, no, right? Whoever's preaching that, they're lying to you. Christ has not returned because we're still here, right? Um, you can say it about Galatians, right? You know that he's writing against the false gospel that the Judaizers are preaching and teaching where they're at, trying to add circumcision. You need Jesus plus you need to be circumcised. And so when you read the book of Galatians, you know, here's the thing about Ephesians. We don't know why he wrote it. Like we just don't. Scholars, you can read hours upon hours about what, why we think he wrote it, but it, it does not read like most of his letters. It reads as if He's not reacting to something, but rather he's being proactive. It doesn't read as if he's trying to fix something that's wrong. It reads as if he knows sort of what life is like where they're living. And he is almost anticipating that these things will come up. And so he's getting out in front of uh, problems. And, and here's what I think. I think that um, to understand Ephesians, you have to know Acts 18, 19 and 20. You have to also know 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and you also have to know parts of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 2, when uh, the, 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 the John is writing that letter to the church at Ephesus, which we talked about several weeks ago. I think when you put all of these things together, here's what I think Ephesians is about. I think it's about sound doctrine. Now, why do I say that? When Paul went into Ephesus to preach and teach, Apollos had been before him. And Apollos was an eloquent man. Many came to faith, but there was something wrong with what he was preaching. He did not preach being baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
And that's when Aquila and Priscilla pulled him to the side and told him about the Holy Spirit. And then he's off. He's out. Right. Well, then Paul comes to Ephesus right after Apollos and he meets converts of Apollos who still did not know about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul teaches them about the Holy Spirit. They're baptized and all of that. Well, here's the thing. When you read Acts 19, Paul then goes back. He goes into Ephesus and he tells them, hey, I'm going to preach the gospel. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches and teaches for several months. And then the Jews start to rebel and they start to uh, speak evil of Paul's message. And so he withdrew and he went and rented. We think he rented or someone gifted him a lecture hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. And it says that Paul stayed there for two years from morning until evening, preaching and unpacking the gospel. But then a riot broke out in Ephesus. And so Paul leaves. Well, the next time he has any interaction with the Ephesian church, it's not with the members. He calls the Ephesian elders to him and he says, come to me. He says, all I know is that I'm being constrained by the spirit to go into Rome and I will die and I will not lay eyes on any of you again. And he says, keep a close watch on yourselves, for I know that when I leave, fierce wolves will arise from among you and they will speak twisted things, trying to cause people to go after them. And so Paul is this is real prophecy, right? This stuff is happening before it unfolds in history. And so Paul has been given this image or this vision about this church before it unfolds. And so he knows, he says, look, the spirit has shown me that some of you are corrupt. And as soon as I leave, you're going to speak twisted things to get the congregation to follow you. But I want to wash my hands. You know how I toiled day and night for three years, how I preached and teach and sweated and cried and bled to be here. Right. So here's the thing. The next time you hear something about the Ephesians, it's in First Timothy. Well, Paul, Paul actually says, Timothy, this is why I left you in Ephesus so that you will charge such men not to preach false doctrine. And over and over in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, they're going to swerve away from the truth. Timothy, you guard the good deposit which you heard from me. Timothy, devote yourself to the reading and public teaching of the word. Timothy, you know what I preach and teach. You do not be afraid. Do not have a spirit in fear. You go out there and you preach sound doctrine. And so we know that Ephesians was written when Paul was in prison because he's going to later talk about it. Here's what I think. I, I think that Ephesians is his attempt to get out there in front of what's going to happen and to show them the most clearest, succinct truth about orthodox biblical Christianity. And Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to this. It will save your soul and the souls of your hearers. So I think Ephesians is about sound doctrine. And so I want to unpack some of that for the next several months, these central things to our faith. So I'm going to read the passage that we're in this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. So we only got two verses this morning. Ephesians chapter one, verses one and two. Paul, I know Monica over there laughing. because She's like, look, two verses. Like, what is that? But I think it's a seed right here. I think this is the seed that blooms in the rest of the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you say that your word is inspired, that it is from you, that it is living and it is active, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Even these two verses right here, they're at the beginning of a letter. It's easy to read past them, but every single word is your word. And I do pray that you will give your servant wisdom and grace to unpack it in a way that is faithful, in a way that points us to you, in a way that uh, makes us more like Jesus. Would you do this for your glory and your honor? In Christ's name, amen. So there's a general rule of thumb that you cannot be in two places at the same time, right? So think about it. Think about it if you're a father and you travel for work and your daughter has a ballet performance and you really have to make a decision, right? Because your work is saying, hey, we need you in New York or we need you in New Orleans. But your daughter is saying, daddy, I want you to come to my show. And you're torn, right? You feel that in that moment, you cannot possibly satisfy both parties that someone will be hurt, right? Now think about it. Um, think about any crime show, right? If you're watching a crime show, Law and Order, that if, if you're a suspect in a case and, and there's this crime that's committed, the first thing you have to do is to provide an alibi. And what does the alibi say? The alibi says that at that particular time, I was not over there because I was over here. And if you can prove that you were not there but over here, then you're not a suspect anymore. That it's a rule of thumb that a person cannot occupy two spaces at one time. It's scientifically impossible. It'd be great, though. It'd be great to be in two places at one time, right? It, can, can you imagine how productive you could be? I mean, I could be at work and be at the gym, and I wouldn't have to sort of, like, choose sleep over going to the gym. Like, I, I mean, think about how much you and I could do if we could be in two places at one time. But it's impossible. Or we think. You see, the first piece of good news that Paul drops on the Ephesians is contrary to popular belief if you are a Christian, you are in two places at one time. And we don't have all the categories to understand it, but the first piece of doctrine that Paul drops on the church, you are in two places at one time. Now, what I want to do is sort of show you this truth. I want to talk about the, I want to show you the truth, the truth of our dual residency. So if you want to take notes, do the truth of our dual residency, then I want to talk about the tension that comes with being a dual resident. Then I want to talk about the triumph that is ours in Christ, though we are in the world, right? Just, so just triumph if you want to. They've got the three T's going on. Truth, tension, triumph, all right? Here's the thing. When Paul opens this letter, I want you to look at what he says. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul is introducing himself and he's saying that this message that I'm writing, it is not inspired by Paul. It's been given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ and through the will of the Father. In other words, when Paul's original hearers were to read this letter, they were to accept it 
as if Paul was but a messenger, an apostle set apart to, to, to write this to him. So it comes with them with the full weight and the words of God Almighty. And so notice what he calls them. First, he calls them saints who are in Ephesus, right? And so look at that phrase. When he says in Ephesus, he is talking about where they live. He's talking about every morning when you wake up, you are waking up in Ephesus, right? You're waking up in that city who has its own ruler, who has its own money, who has its own citizenship, who has its, I mean, I mean, it, it is almost as if it's, it's another real world, Paul is saying. You are in Ephesus and you wake up every single morning breathing air there, spending money there, going to work there, going to school there, going to, I mean, the grocery store there, going to the market there. There is an, an, an earthiness about what he's saying. This is where you live and you wake up and you breathe every single day, right? Now, here's a question that we have to ask. What do we know about Ephesus and what might Paul be alluding to? That in Paul's day, Ephesus was the capital of Asia. It was a seat of government and it was a major commerce center. Many people say that Ephesus was second in size and importance only to Rome. That it was famous because one of the seven wonders of that world was right there in that city. And it was a temple to a, an Olympian goddess by the name of Artemis. And she was the goddess of childbirth. She was a protectress of the girl children from the time they're born up to the time that they're married. She was also the goddess of hunting and the wilderness and wild animals, right? This is Greek mythology, but you gotta understand that there was a real temple to this faith, fake god in the city. Now, here's the thing. What would it have been like if you were living in Paul's day? Well, here's the thing. When you want to see how history, what we know with geography and, and, and just excavations, there was a real temple there. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't deny that. Matter of fact, when you go back to uh, the book of Acts, and this is where I will have you turn. If you, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn back to the book of Acts, and we'll go to Acts chapter 19. And I want to sort of set the stage there because I think it's really helpful that this Holy Spirit actually put this in our Bibles so that when we look at Ephesus, we can actually go back here and look at what the city was like. So in Acts chapter 18, uh, I think, man, I, I do this all the time. Y'all forgive me. It's Acts chapter 19. I'm so sorry. All right. So in Acts chapter 19 and, and, 19 and, and 18, 19, and 20, I'm going to walk you through it here quickly. Um, Paul goes there, and, and he's filled with the Spirit, and it, it, it is so, like, shattering that look at 1911, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So, so now look at me real quick. So this is like what you see on TBN where somebody's like, hey, you give me $100, I'll send you a prayer cloth, right? Or you give me $100 and I give you a bottle of water that I blessed and prayed over. And so people kind of send them $100 and they get this regular tap water, right? That, this is the fake stuff, right? No, this was the real stuff right here, though, right? This was the real spirit, the, the season of the, 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 the Holy Spirit's kind of working in a unique and special way right then so that, that if, if a handkerchief touched Paul, they took it to people and people were just miraculously healed. And notice Paul didn't sell it. He wasn't making money off of it, right? 
This was not about money or profiting. This was about the Holy Spirit just showing up and showing that I'm working through this man. Now, here's the thing. Reputation got out. Reputation got out that, man, something is up with this Paul guy. And so keep on going. Look at verse 13 of chapter 19. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, people who cast out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over the evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. And the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, right? So think about this. This is in the, and, and notice where it happens. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and the fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those now believers came confessing and divulging their former practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all, and they counted the value of them, and it was found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's Ephesus right there. Dark magic, worshiping false gods, and here's the thing. Right after this, the guy who made the false gods for the temple a metallurgist or a silversmith, his name is Alexander. No, am I getting his name right? Demetrius, right there in verse 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And so here's what happened. When this guy figures out that, wait a minute, everybody is leaving their former way of life, they're divulging their witchcraft and this demonic stuff, and they're burning it, and it's costing 50,000 pieces of silver, He's wise enough to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't you see what's happening? That this Jesus guy that Paul is preaching, he is overturning our city. And if we don't stop him, we will not have jobs. And if we don't stop him, we will rob Artemis of her worship. And so he roused the whole city together and there's this big riot. And that's when Paul leaves. But here's the point, that living in Ephesus, this is what it felt like. There's this temple right over here, the seventh wonder of the world. And if I don't appease this God, I might have a miscarriage. That if I don't appease this God, my kid might die in childbirth. If I don't appease this God, we just might not have food this winter. And so can you imagine living in this city with this kind of crushing weight of idolatry that when you walk and breathe and live, this is what you're up against? And notice what Paul says. You're in Ephesus. He doesn't say go leave. He doesn't say go start your own community. He doesn't say go start a new city. He says, no, you're going to live this out right where you are. Now, here's the thing. That's not the only place they are. Notice what else Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. You are, you're saints, and you are in Ephesus. But you're also faithful in Christ Jesus, right? You're, you're in two places. You're in Ephesus, but you're also in Jesus. You are in Jesus Christ was what Paul is saying. Now, I know, right? I look at that and I'm just like, okay, that's, that's just like in Jesus Christ. Okay, if I were to read this on my own, I would like glance past this as if it's nothing, right? But here's the thing. This is one of, I think it's the second most important two words in all of the Bible. 
I think the most important two words in all of the Bible comes to us in the next chapter in Ephesians 2 when it says, but God being rich in mercy. That but God right there, when you look at the plight of humanity and you look at who we were when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving God's wrath, deserving God's judgment, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy, the but God is the turn of the gospel. It is God reaching down into our condition to do something about it. I think that is the most important two words in all of the Bible, but I think in Christ is second. Let me show you how much he uses it. Look at, and so track with me, right? I'm in, I'm in Ephesians chapter one. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look at verse five. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, were sealed by the Spirit. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If, you, if we were to sit here and unpack all the times and ways that Paul understands in Christ, he says you have died in Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. He says you are resting in Christ. He says, beloved, do not grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe that the dead in Christ will rise first. So even death cannot sever this union that we have with the Lord Jesus. It says that we are reigning with Christ. We'll be raised in Christ. For Paul, he does not understand a Christian's identity apart from his union or her communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that important to him. It is not just two words. For Paul, this is the heart of the gospel. That when God saves you, you are engrafted into the work and person of his son. That what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a person, but in some ways that blows our minds, Jesus is also a place. You remember what Jesus says in John? As he looks at a temple, he says, you destroy this temple and I promise you in three days I'll raise it up. And do you know what it did to the Jews? They had no category. What do you mean? Do you know how long it took us to make the temple and to build the temple? But what was Jesus saying? That you can commune with me, not over there. You commune with the Father through me. In other words, what is Jesus saying? I'm the temple. That place that you're going to, that building you're walking in, it's actually right here. I'm the place. I'm the place where you meet with your God. And isn't that like God to make Jesus the MVP of the story of redemption? That it, it, I mean, it, it's almost as if God is saying all roads leads back to Jesus, no matter where you want to go. You want to go to temple? Yes, it's in Jesus. The promised land? Yes, your ultimate rest is in Jesus, right? That, that think about what the author of Hebrews does. The author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? But here's the thing. In Hebrews itself, it, it switches the metaphor on us. Jesus isn't just a high priest. He's the offering. He's the lamb. So think about if you try to draw that, right? That Jesus has himself in his hands. That's what Scripture's doing. It's telling you that all things are united to the Father through one person, and it's Jesus. And so Paul is saying, you are living in Ephesus, but you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul learns this the hard way, right? Y'all remember Acts chapter 9? When Paul was persecuting Christians and going from house to house, dragging them. And you remember when the flash of light comes around him and he falls to his face and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Think about the image, right? He was not laying a hand on the resurrected Jesus. He was laying a hand on the followers of Jesus, but Jesus so identifies with his people. If you touch them, you're touching me. You see, the union with Christ. That John Murray has a book, it's entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And he goes on to say that nothing is more central or basic to Christianity than union with Jesus. There is a spiritual and mystical union and communion between God and his people. We were chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, redeemed in Christ, crucified with Christ, will die in Christ and be raised in Christ. It means that you, if you are in Christ, Christ is also in you. He is our federal representative and all that he has done is counted to us as if we've done it. It means Christ is in you. There is this real living bond between us and Jesus, right? And because of that union with Jesus, look at what Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ. God looks at them as holy. God has made them holy. He looks at them every morning as if they're faithful. He's given them faith. So every morning they wake up in Ephesus and what the gospel says, though you're living in Ephesus and though your eyes see some crazy stuff and though your heart might get wrapped up into some crazy stuff, beloved, you are still holy because you're in my son and he is holy and he has laid down his life to save you and to redeem you. And that follows you wherever you go and whatever you're getting in, you are still holy and faithful in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. You're living in two places. Your, your feet are on the ground right there, but you're reigning with your king right there. Two places, same time. Now, here's the question. Because we're in two places at the same time, tension is certain to arise, right? And so I want to look at the tension of our dual residency. When I say tension, I want you to think about the childhood game that we played called tug of war, right? Some of y'all know what tug of war is. Most of you know what it is, right? You get this rope, you lay it out, you get one team on one side, one team on the other, and when someone says go, you pull. Now, don't think about playing the game. Think about being the rope. 
And think about what's happening to you in that moment, right? You got one force going this way, pulling you, pulling you, and you got a, another force going the opposite direction, pulling you this way. And what's happening in the middle is tension, right? The rope is not limp. It's tight. It's being, it's, it's being attempted to be pulled these two ways. And I want to submit to you that that, if we're really honest, that that describes how it feels to be a believer, right? Don't you feel that in your heart? Don't you feel the pull of the earth and the things of the world? But don't you also feel the heights of glory? Don't you feel the hope of glory? Your, your mind and gaze is also set on Christ. And so what's happening is, is because they're in Ephesus and also in Jesus, you get this tension that's happening. Where the action takes place makes a difference. So here's the thing, like if I love football, NFL particularly, and I'm so glad it's about to start up. Um, but if you ask any NFL player, where you play the game can change the element, right? It, it can change your ability to perform. I still think the most dreaded place to play is in Denver. I've gone to Denver a few times and I thought I could go run like three miles and I get a mile in and I'm just like, I, I cannot do it, right? I just can't do it. I, at night, I can't sleep. It feels like I'm choking because the air is just so thin and I'm waking up all through the night. That, that's what it's like in Denver. Imagine being an NFL football player, having to go play the Denver Broncos and you're down here at sea level. Then all of a sudden you go Mile High Stadium. It's no wonder Gatorade. I, I mean, if you want to look, watch an NFL team, the bit, not, not, the, not Denver side, watch the visitor side. When they're playing, you will not see, you will see Gatorade, but you will see oxygen masks out there, right? <laughs> These dudes like, coach, give me at the game, coach, give me at the game. They'll run a couple plays and they'll run to the sideline. Why? Because the atmosphere is just different. One guy by the name of Ryan Clark, who used to play for the Philadelphia, um, no, Pittsburgh Steelers, he has a, a sickle cell disease. And uh, he has the trait, not the actual disease, so he has the trait. But the last time he played there, he had to get his spleen and his gallbladder removed. He lost 30 pounds and almost died. And so they were going to play a playoff game there a few years ago. And coach said, nope, I'm benching you. You cannot play in this area. I say that because I think at times it feels like that. Living on the earth and being here on this side of glory isn't it just harder to be holy? Isn't it just harder to pursue the Lord? And I, and I think the problem is that person or that person or that person. The problem ain't other people. Like, it's me and, and where I am. Like, I'm not yet glorified and redeemed. And so living out my faith right here on this earth is really, really, really difficult. That's the tension. That's what we feel. And I think what Paul does in this book is to show us, Right. Now, if you, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to go to the end of the book. How do we know that Paul knows that living in Ephesus is difficult? Just think about how Ephesians ends. Spiritual warfare. Put on the full armor of God, because if you don't, Ephesus will destroy you, right? Paul knows that, that that's, yes, 
you are a conqueror, but, buddy, you are in Ephesus, so gird up your loins, put that helmet on, put on that breastplate. It's all out war where you live. And that war, let's go back, will come back and you will start to see it pop up where? You're going to see it in work. You're going to see it in the way that employees treat their employers. You're going to see it the way employers hate their employees. It's going to show up in your home when your kids, they, they, they don't want to honor you. They don't want to respect you. you it's going to show up in your marriages where your husbands don't want to lay down their lives like Christ loved the church. It's going to show up in your marriages when wives don't want to honor and submit it's going to show up, right, when you have these different cultures merging together, black and white, or in his day, Jew and Gentile. And Paul has to write in Ephesians 2 and 3 about the unity that we have in the body. Why is he writing about the unity of the church? Because he knows that in Ephesus, you segregate. You see, when you understand the whole book in light of the fact that they are being pulled, now I get why he has to write to a husband about loving his wife. Because he knows you're in Christ and you're also in Ephesus. And the ways of Ephesus and the practices of Ephesus, it's still there in front of you. Now, let's be real honest. Haven't we seen this dynamic play itself out in the church, right? Haven't you seen, and I'm thinking about the church, and, and I'm think, thinking about the big church, right? The, the church of the ages. And I, and I guarantee you, you're going to see these two things. On the one hand, you're going to see faithfulness because Paul calls him faithful in Christ. He calls him holy in Christ. You're going to see holiness, but you're also going to see this other dynamic where there is unholiness and there is cowardice. And I'm talking about the church, the big church, right? You see it when guys like William Wilberforce work to outlaw slavery. You see it when, when people go into leper colonies to preach and teach the gospel. You see it when, when people go into cities to plant churches where they don't even have a police force, right? You see the church doing all these good things and praise God and amen. They are acting holy and being faithful because they are in Christ. But if you look at every church, the big church long enough, you're also going to see this other stuff. Christians justified slavery. Christians will retreat and move away and form their own Christian ghettos, right? You'll see Christians who will, who, 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 will, who will choose one side of partisan politics rather than towing the middle, towing the way of Jesus. Christians lose their gaze. Christians lose their focus and think that this party or this party, if you look at, I'm telling you, if you look at the church, you're going to always come up with this faithful, holy, good. Man, that's cowardly. That is not the way of Jesus. You're going to see it in other people. I used to serve students. And one of the things I used to love to do was to go to mission trips or summer conference. And anytime you get like 40 or 50 people kind of living together for like a week, all the ratchetness just comes out, right? <laughs> it just, it just, all the ratchetness. Like, you know, you can kind of pretend in front of somebody and you can kind of smile and act like you're holy. But then when you got to like live with somebody for a whole week, you see all the ratchetness. I'm just telling you, right? 
And so regularly on trips, right, I'm, I'm amazed, right? They're getting up and they're doing quiet times. They're going to the large group they're serving. They're doing good things, right? Amen. Praise Jesus. And it never failed. Every single trip, man, Pastor L, can I move rooms? I don't want to live with her, right? <laughs> or somebody like staying on the phone all night and keeping everybody up. Somebody want to, this dude want to walk down the, the, the beach and hold hands with this girl and the whole bus. We're like going this way. You start to see like all the selfishness. It comes out, right? You see it in other people. You, if you get close to any one of us in this room and you stay around us long enough and our real selves come out and we stop hiding and pretending, you will see that. You will see holiness and faithfulness and you're also going to see ratchetness. Right? And guess what? You go see it in your own heart. Not just the church and not just other people. Man, I can't tell you how many mornings, right? I wake up and I spend time with the Lord. And I'm crying because of grace, of God's grace. I'm blown away, right? That you would love me, that you would choose me, that you would love me, that you would think about me, that you would put me in your son before the foundations of the world, before I was even born, that you were already thinking about and pursuing and loving me in Jesus, that I know all of this and I feel all of this and I'm convinced that I'm going to go out here and live this way and honor you. And then you give me three hours and some just, it trips me off and sets me off. Is that the same God? Yes. That's the tension. Being in Ephesus or in Jackson and also in Jesus, we feel that. And I think we got this. This opens up a conversation about grace, that when you see people and you see the this other stuff coming out of them. Hey, that, that's that's that that's that Jackson coming up out of you. Right. Right. And when you see people living holy and faithful, I see you, baby. That's Jesus shining in you, right? I think it gives us a category to see and understand the highs and the lows of our spiritual journeys and, and in the other people as well. Now, here's the question. How do we know that this world won't get the last say? How do we know that we won't, like Judas, sell out Jesus for silver? How do we know that we won't like Demas? Paul says, he's left me. He loved the world. He went to Thessalonica. I'm here alone. See, that's the million dollar question, is how do we know that that won't be the way that our lives end? How do you know that you won't be given over to darkness? How do you know? And here is the good news of the gospel. God will not lose you. Do you actually think your father in heaven is sweating, saying, my baby, look at where she's living. Look at where he's living. Look at what they're doing. Oh, my God, I don't know if they're going to finish. Do we really think that that's God's posture? Or do we think he runs it? Do we really think he only gave us grace when we were converted? Do we really think that he's only at peace 
when we were aware that one has laid down his life for us and has made peace? Or do we think that goodness and mercy will follow his people all the days of our lives and that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because God is relentlessly and lavishly pursuing us with grace and with peace every single day he pursues his people with grace and peace every single day you wake up right here and no matter what you did last night right the good news of the gospel is that it is really good news that God does not just give you grace and peace back then when you say when you were saved he gives you grace and peace forever and that's what Paul says he says grace to you and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, I can tell you, I can look at you in your face and say, if you are in Jesus, and this tugging is happening, right? That this pool is coming this way, and then the, it, it, the pool is going that way. I can promise you that the one who will have the final pool, who will land you in glory, is the Lord. The world will not win. It cannot win because God's grace is stronger and mightier than any sin. You will win if you are in Jesus Christ. God will not cast you away. He is satisfied with you. He is pleased with you. He loves you and he will welcome you home. It says grace and peace to you from Jesus and the Father. It's yours. It's yours. I was trying to think about a way to end it, but I'm thinking about, okay, what person kind of lived in a really bad situation and what happened to him, right? And, and I just kept thinking about 2 Peter when it talks about Lot. It talks about Lot who, if you go back to Genesis, he, he looked for the city that looked like Eden, and he ended up going to that city. And when you go to Peter, you read 2 Peter, Peter says, the Lord knows how to do two things. He knows how to rescue and keep his people, right? And he knows how to hold those who were not under judgment, right? And that's the good news right there. Lot's soul was tormented. In Sodom and Gomorrah is what Peter says. But you know who had the last say so? It was God who called him out. It was God who protected. And that is good news to us believers. There is grace and peace to God's people now and forever. You will stand because Jesus has won that for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would uh, allow this truth, this doctrine to go into the depths of our souls, that we are in two places at one time. We, if we are in Jesus, we are with you and here. Father, I pray for those who don't quite know you and, and they don't feel this tugging, this tugging toward the gospel, this tugging towards the things of the Lord. I pray that you would capture their affections with your grace and with your mercy in Jesus and that they would come and drink much of it. I pray that you will encourage us on our low points, encourage us in our sins, and that we are sons and daughters of the King 
Let us repent and run back to Jesus. I pray that we will worship you through the grace that is ours in Christ and all that you have done. May he be the hero of the Bible and the hero of our salvation. For Christ's sake, amen.